for our 17th night rule, we had a lovely discussion with Arjun of the Deep Into History podcast. Uh, we touched on all kinds of historical topics, including you know our approaches to history, our thoughts on studying history, um, and how those might differ from most. For today's intro and outro, we'd be listening to Sakamoto Ryuchi and Danceries. This first song is called Saracen's Love, German Songs. And the second song is... The End of Asia. Now both of these are played, that's right, on genuine medieval and renaissance instruments. So without any further ado, this is Night Roll. is like just a wealth of knowledge it's like i uh yeah he amazes me because you can ask him about he's one of the few people that you can ask him about literally anything and he will give you everything the whole the historical context everything it's just he's an incredible person to talk to and you know an incredible person to know just wonderful yeah. guy yeah um well, why don't we get started? Welcome everyone to uh, Night Rule. We have a very special guest today, Arjun from the Deep Into History podcast. Um, he's a historian and a storyteller. He's a narrative magician. Um, any other any other titles we should give you, uh, Arjun? Uh, lore master. My friends, my fans call me the lore master, so I adopted mm. that as my own. Um, thank you. Oh, just nice for correction. I'm not. I studied history. I'm not a historian per se. It's just a, a huge, as Dan Carlin says, a huge fan of it. And uh, yeah, so I, I kind of, my, my style is to make it memorable. So I put all the facts into um, a narrative tale in the old like Homeric or, you know, Nordic and Druidic traditions so that, you know, it, it, it kind of becomes like a cultural memory. Mm, mm. Yeah, like a, like a kind of honoring that kind of performative history of bards and traveling kind of uh, storytellers on the loot. I mean, like, it's interesting because a lot of ancient history and classical history is pretty like considered kind of dusty and stodgy, but I mean, the people at the time were very much engaged with it. And it was probably considered to be like very much more like a popular kind of like street level um, thing. You know, I mean, even going back to Homer, I mean, Homer wasn't even originally written down. If I, if I, if I remember correctly, it was more just like an actual like uh, oral tradition, right? That's correct. Yeah. For 500 years, I between four and 500 years, it was told completely orally until Homer actually wrote it down, which is stunning if you think about it. But then, you know, you take traditions like, um, for example, um, the Druidic tradition. It took uh, an acolyte about 20 years to actually learn the lore 
enough to be considered a druid. So like, you know, it was a lifelong pursuit and the art of carrying a people's history forward was, was left to that special people, which is what really gave them so much power because it's, it, you know, it's magical if you can tie, you know, uh, you know, some, some young kid and say, look, this is what your ancestor did. And this is what the tribe did. And this is what, this is how, this is our story. And it gives, it gives an enormous amount of power. I, I think, it, I think it's wonderful. Certainly and more engaging. Um, and I think, I think it's interesting because I think most of the, like most people on uh, on mass don't really consider history as something of a, a kind of a practical pursuit. You know, it's, it's like, um, maybe people think of it as more of an escape or, or just like kind of a nice diversion to kind of like walk through the halls of, of, of the great names of history and the great events of history in a book. But, um, but studying history has a lot of practical applications to someone's like everyday life, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. I mean, the parallels that can be drawn, um, I mean, obviously in this, this time they're glaring, but at every, every stage of your life, um, there, are, there are lessons to be learned from history. Um, and because in essence, it doesn't matter if it's you or I talking today or two Romans standing in the street in, in, um, you know, 58, uh, BC, they, um, we are the exact same people. But the thing is that we, um, we now have like limits on our mind that are, that, that don't exist, whereas they existed before. So the same, same human beings, just in a vastly different world and a vastly different idea of what is possible and the reason for things that happened. So, you know, today we explain so much and it's a wonderful time to be alive in, in many ways because we can explain so much with science and, um, you know, and, and learning. And then we're marrying those together to, ex to explain our history and giving us a much better um, understanding. For example, like forensic archeology, span is telling us about how people lived um mm. and and it's it's giving us oh it I, I often call it like a golden age right now because mm. quite literally we can actually paint a picture like i do in the show um you know triangulating all the disciplines so you can actually tell people and allow them to experience what life was actually like then mm. which i find really fascinating i mean it's always you know it's great to know kind of the broad strokes and the the kings and the queens and the the famous figures but but sometimes you left wondering you know like what was it actually like for a person just a regular person like me living at this time um and you're right there is like a lot of really exciting uh developments in, in a lot of different fields um forensic you, you say forensic uh, archaeology forensic archaeology yeah that's what that definitely. would that include like um all the like aerial photography and laser laser radar that's being used to find stuff now <laughs> that's a different discipline i'm not an archaeologist but i know that's a different um uh, discipline but you're absolutely right i've seen some a uh, very very recent um uh uh, drones, drone flyovers showing burial mounds that they never thought existed before. And, you know, it's kind of democratizing history in that way, because amateurs are that, that those were done by amateurs. So it, it's, 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 uh, it's a fascinating time. Yeah, I know there was a really interesting case where there was uh, some burial mounds found near um, Istanbul, uh, what was once known as Constantinople. And for, for decades, they just they looked at them and they thought, oh, you know, those are like 15th century, no big deal, no big deal. And then, of course, I think that's what was that's that was Gobleki Tepe originally. Like they thought they thought they were 15th century burial mounds or something, and then they started to excavate it. Um, right. It and it turns out that it's yeah, it turns out it may it may well have been one of the very first civilizations ever to exist. I, I hope I hope that area settles down because um, you know obviously for the people and, and peace in that area, but also there's um, 
a lot to be learned from there. If we can, if human, if humans as in general can finally get their act together and move together, you know, it would be a wonderful thing because, uh, you know, it's been, it's been tragic what's been going on in Syria, uh, Southern Turkey, for sure. You know, um, the destruction of, um, of Palmyra, which is, was one of the greatest preserved Roman cities is basically destroyed by ISIS. And what is not often talked about has um, they, they, they've sold treasures that belong to us all um, into the global black market. And now they're in the collections of, you know, billionaires. It's, 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 it's yeah. disheartening. I mean, we we can get into politics a little bit here. I mean, I, oh, I view it. I view it as like a, no, <laughs> to no, me, it's no, always no, I, it's always like always one in the same, right? No, of course, so, yeah. of course. Me for me too. I mean, I think you know, you look at something like that where it's like um, obviously there's insurgency and rebellion and terrorism and and all kinds of barbarity as a reaction to I, I would argue kind of neo imperialism, neo colonialism, and whatnot. And it's like it's kind of funny when I think we look at these at, at different countries and say, hey, you guys need to be preserving your archaeological heritage. We need to respect the past. And I, I often imagine people saying, well, look, respect our present. Like, stop bombing us. Stop doing these things to us. And maybe we'll maybe we'll have we'll have a little, a little more open minded to not destroy these like um, all these ancient statues and whatnot. It's 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 really like I, I think it's horrible when those kinds of antiquities are destroyed. But I think we also need to kind of like look at the greater context and understand that like when people are, are just struggling for the basics, um, they're not necessarily going to care that much about these kinds of things, you know? Oh, absolutely. I, I'm, I'm with you 100%. That's why, like, you know, I kind of said, like, we have to, like, as a race, as the human race, we have to get our act together and start um, providing for people's basic needs because we're, I mean, we're at literally a point in our history where everyone can be given a decent quality of life. There's enough resources. And, um, that, you know, that's a unique thing because you look back in history and that wasn't the case. It's never really been the case. Um, and to see us, you know, fumble this opportunity that has taken us millennia to get to is kind of disheartening. Oh, for sure it is. Um, and especially for anyone who has who's ever been like the least bit interested in history or kind of like walk down that that path a little bit like um, the, the the losses to kind of the cultural heritage and the collective memory and collective kind of spirit of humanity that you it, it can be pretty harrowing. I mean, mind you, the past is very mysterious. I find I find it interesting. Like, I don't know if you've ever watched any of the documentaries of uh, Werner Herzog, but he he talks uh, oftentimes about how impossible it is to really decipher history. Like he, he did this one documentary called Cave of Forgotten Dreams, which is about that very famous cave in Spain with like some of the oldest cave paintings found. Okay. His, his stipulation, he's fascinated by it because he's looking at it and he just says, you know, like we can, we can, you know, we, we've, we've spun up this yarn about what we think these paintings mean and what they meant to the people that painted them. But ultimately it's this, this is so far back into prehistory that we really have no idea, you know, like a, an anthropologist will come and say, okay, well, this is part of a, um, like a zoological worship of, you know, this, that, and the other thing. Um, and I think, but ultimately, like one of the things I find actually most fascinating about history is how impenetrable it can really be when you get down to it to try and really imagine what it was like for someone to live in the past. And I actually find a lot of romance and a lot of intrigue in that kind of pursuit in a weird way, even though it, it is it, like the, the impenetrability somehow fascinates me all the more, which is a little bit ironic. Uh, exactly. I mean, it, it, you said it so beautifully. It, it, it's true. It's, it's, it truly is intoxicating. And what, what, is, what, is, what is also like, I, I find the romance of it is that you can peel back the layers. Um, you know, 
reading primary sources, thankfully for like the Roman and Greek world, we do have primary sources. But, um, you know, when you get past that, let's say, you know, um, pre the first dark age, which I mark as basically the fall of Troy or the destruction of the island of Thera, um, they, uh, when we're talking about um, 1150 BCE approximately, um, once you go past that, it becomes much, much harder because we don't actually have any written evidence. But we, like I said, because um, science and the humanities are doing this dance together where they're kind of merging a little bit, especially around um, history, we are slowly and surely start, starting to be able to piece, piece together more and more of the past, um, uh, it's particularly that dark age area. But if you go to something Neolithic, I mean, it's it's quite literally impossible to know what was going on through through the minds of those people because you know i don't think anyone alive today short of some very very isolated places on the planet have ever experienced life as a hunter gatherer you know um in a world where there is no technology where there is it's quite literally life and death all the time and everyone had to be hard or you died like it's just um <laughs> it's mind-blowing like it, it is it is it is extraordinarily an extraordinarily different human experience just ten thousand years ago what you think yeah. when you think of it in planetary terms it's a blink of the blink of the eye well it's interesting because i feel like you know there's a movement of uh i mean kind of western chauvinistic uh kind of anthropology and history that will look at say a, a current like an extent culture gatherer culture and say okay well we understand them anthropologically in this way and and they'll study them as subjects and whatnot, but um, but and and people take satisfaction in that. But I actually find it somehow much more satisfying just to surrender to the notion that like, look, like well, you can you'll never be able to fully understand um, what someone was thinking, you know, uh, ten thousand years ago. You'll never fully be able to understand stepping into their shoes. You can just kind of get hints and kind of the pursuit of that, like you said, peeling back the layers um, and uh, surrendering to the unknown in a bizarre way is one of the things I kind of love most about learning about history and, and looking at, um, ancient cultures. Absolutely. There is, there is a power to saying and, and, and surrendering to the notion that, um, we don't know, but I think it's hard for someone who is, um, you know, trying to make a rhetorical point to say, I don't know. Right. Mm, so they, tend, they yeah, so they, they, they tend to, um, uh, particularly when it's used in rhetoric, they, they tend to paint it in a very, very narrow scope to make a very, very narrow point. Um, but I, I just, I, I love the idea that we can, um, we can always learn, but no matter how, how clear the sources are and everything we read, even if we go back to something like, you know, the Civil War where we have some, some grainy photography and all that kind of stuff, we will never truly, we'll always be looking through a kind of blurry screen at it. You know, uh, because we um, we didn't we didn't have film, we didn't have actual interviews, um, we don't have any concept of what it was like to live then. And I, th you know, another strange part about our time is that we also live in a time where I think people actually have a good idea about what life was like, like say during the pandemic, because um, this is this is the birth of us basically all of humanity moving online because we're forced to. Um, it's it's interesting. Yeah. Um, I also feel as though one thing that, that can kind of get easily lost in, in history, if it's just kind of like if the mainstream view of it is, is accepted, is this um, 
is the fact that you can never really study history or look at history without bringing your own kind of presentism or your own perspective to it. Like I think of, you know, the great ancient Greek playwrights writing about um, the sack of Troy, but it was during the Peloponnesian War with Sparta. And obviously the play and the people watching the play and this historical drama is playing out in a context that that is meant to, in that case specifically, speak to their, their present condition, you know? And I feel like that's always there, not always admitted to though. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's, I mean, it's impossible. I think we are all the sum of our experiences. And, um, you know, I think the greatest historians, people like Adnan Hussein, or, um, you know, they, they basically try to um, uh, put themselves aside and see it as clinically as possible in order to, to explain it. But I think it, that's, that's a difficult pursuit. Um, because I also like to consider the human element in history, which is what I like kind of write into my scripts, um, because we have to understand that uh, it can be a set of facts and dates and, 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 and descriptions, but in order to us to fu fully appreciate them, we have to understand that they were human, just exactly like us living in different circumstances. And when I think when you start a start to see the humanity in history, um, you you begin to get a better grasp. We'll never know for sure, but you know we get a better grasp of it. Sure, um, I wanted to ask you actually because I think I think your podcast uh, is kind of in this milieu. Like um, having taken a few history classes in, in post secondary, you know, and, and having read a lot of uh, classical history as a kid, um, I always. You know, I never really noticed it until I got a little older, but there is this very strong strand of uh, of Western chauvinism and kind of this idea of like, okay, well, civilization started in Greece, it went to the Romans, and we're now the latest in this long line, this tradition. And we're, I remember this horrible documentary I watched in school once that was just like, you know, produced in the 60s, and it was just like, you know, the, the, we, we save civilization just by the skin of our teeth in Western Europe during the dark ages, you know, these Irish monks kept the flame alive and now, and now it's our duty to, to carry it forward. Like when, when you look at the kind of, um, that kind of tone in a lot of historical texts, like what do you think people need to understand to kind of um, dispel that kind of old fashioned notion of just like, you know, the, the, the ancient Greeks to the Romans to Charlemagne to us and when we're, because obviously that's that that's been picked up by all kinds of people um, as a as a tool for their own agenda, right? Absolutely. Um, so like there was there was a um, you know a, a concerted effort to kind of look like that. Any history that was kind of written, I guess, 16th century to basically I would say like the 1970s, really. Not all of them, of course, but a lot of them have that Western, like the Western um, point of view that civilization started here and that's it. But all you have to do is go back to the beginning, the, the, the father of history, Herodotus. Um, he basically broke down the case there. That's the case for the, uh, the he covered the first um, Persian war. And so that was, um, you know, the famous stand at Thermopylae and things like that. But the buildup to that was a vast history, although fantastical, because he got it from people who had heard it from other people and there were exaggerations and all that kind of stuff. But he laid out the civilizations that existed all the way from Greece right across to India and Africa. So um, in his view, there was no there there in, in that way, it's kind of one of the purest history books because it does not really, um, although 
arguably a little bit tilted to the words the Greeks, it was not done in a civilizational sense. Like it was not saying Greek civilization was greater than Persian civilization. It was not, it was, it, the agenda behind it was more, of course, Greek nationalistic, you could say, I mean, depending on what town you're in, but he was writing sure. from Asia Minor in, in, in um, you know, modern Turkey, Hel Halicarnassus, I believe. And yeah. so um, if you go back to the source and you see that it, all, everyone was pretty much considered um, equal, the Western, the idea of Western-centric history um, really comes into play once the slave trade gets going. And then everything mm. becomes that, that Western tilt because it, it was meant to justify the economic engine of the new world. And even before that, the ex economic engine of, um, you know, the, the Portuguese, Spanish. They, I mean, everyone engaged in the slave trade for a while. Mm. Yeah, and I, I'm not sure if there's anyone, you know, currently marching across uh, the U.S., maybe in, in various capital cities, uh, wielding a banner that says we're saving Western civilization. I don't know if any, if anyone um, espousing white supremacy would still <laughs> kind of draw on that tradition. You could tell me maybe, but um, like it's, it's, it, it makes me laugh actually when people on, on the far right and whatnot try and like lay claim to quote unquote Western civilization, because like, first of all, it's incredibly nebulous and, and poorly defined term and, and secondly like these motherfuckers never read any of that shit really i mean they don't know they don't know the history do they no because you know the fact of the matter is that they usually hear it from um from from a, a politician or or wannabe um i don't know youtube star these days like or someone who's who has a hate agenda and um they'll cloak it they'll they'll cloak their speeches in history say quote unquote said this quote unquote said that but the when you when you when you take one slice of a gigantic speech one sentence of a gigantic speech you can contextualize it any way you want and the advantage that they have and the the spread of you know dif disinformation that's plaguing us is that they know that those people aren't going to go read the books because yeah. i mean in our society frankly you a lot of people just simply don't have time to read so they'll engage with the with, with whatever media they choose and they get manipulated so it's um it's it's a sad reality but the best we can do is just keep educating people and more importantly i think getting people interested in history to do their own reading being be it on any subject is is important very important for sure um on that same kind of topic, actually, I read an interesting article a few years back that talked about how I think it was the Greek politician, maybe Pericles, whoever it was, he was writing about democracy um, just before they were kind of implementing it in Athens for that that brief time. I think it was only what 12, 20 years that, that democracy was active in Athens, in ancient Athens. Do you know? Um, it, was, no, it was less it was than 50 years for sure. The, what, that they had democracy? Like direct democracy. Yeah. Um. It was a short I am, window. I'm I'm <laughs> not sure offhand because I know yeah. they had like you're talking about the the, the first impl implementation after they got rid of Hippias, right? The the, the yeah, tyrants. I so. Yeah. I and then okay, yeah. Then they they tweaked it and it may, basically became an oligarchy, right? Right. Because yeah. they had to. Yes. Um. Uh, don't guys, whoever, all listeners, don't quote me on this. I, I <laughs> got caught a little off guard because I haven't read on read about this in a while. That's but, okay. Um, if you ever need to just pass and I'll, I'll edit out your answer. Don't worry. I have to do it for myself all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, Isaac, you run with this. Well, I know. Well, I was going to say like, there was, it was an interesting article that basically talked about how this Greek writer at the time said, look, 
I actually learned this from my trip from my travels in Egypt and there was this system of democracy that they used in Egypt in the in the towns to kind of resolve disputes and organize and um, basically this article was a historian saying look like the the actual roots of democracy are in Africa not in not in Greece because this this Greek politician learned it from um, from the Egyptians, which were obviously like, I mean, the ancient Greeks considered the Egyptians like really like the civilization to study, right? Well, yes, because they they were the the most advanced civilization. I mean, we're talking we're we're talking pre you know rise of Athens, but they almost had a mystical um, reputation because they were they were so advanced. What we often overlook as well is the amount of trade that was going on in the Mediterranean world. Uh, pre-dark age and post-dark age i'm talking about the first dark age uh, absolutely you know, yeah uh, yeah and so the the influences of ideas went back and forth the idea from atlantis came from a tale from egypt um you know so it's um it, it, it it's it's really interesting so like the, the notion that you know greece created democracy i'm not taking any away anything away from the greeks so don't tweet at me but uh <laughs> <laughs> but the notion that that happened in um uh, on its own is is ridiculous because humans borrow ideas from each other. I mean, we all do it today. So mm-hmm. it's 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 always been like that. There's always been influences. Nothing happens in, strictly in a bubble. Yeah, and I think I think people sometimes. I mean, certainly when I was younger, reading history, you know, I think it's easy for people to get caught up in kind of a very linear, um, very simplified version of events. It's like, okay, well, this preceded this, and this influenced this. We don't we don't really realize how much um, ancient cultures were were exchanging ideas with each other, like you said, I mean, we have, um, like, it's a little bit later, but you had, you know, Buddha, Jesus of Nazareth and Confucius all, all lived within the same century. So is it, is it a, is it a coincidence that these, these three great historical figures that, that impacted each civilization they were within all came about at the same time? Like maybe obviously there was some kind of flourishing of culture and, and trade at the time that like allowed for you know, because people think, oh, you know, they didn't have cars, they must not have been able to travel to like the next town over to like learn anything, right? But far from it. I mean, they had all the time in the world, right? Right. Well, I mean, especially like an idea has an ability to travel so much further in um, in any in, in in any time, but in the ancient world, they would convert. It was very much about converting followers. You converted a f- um, you know a few dozen, and then they would take it forth, and they would con- con- um, convert a few dozen, and they would take it forth. So uh, these ideas spread. It just took longer, um, and um, uh, you know uh, George R. R. Martin said this once: um, you can never you can never take the idea that someone was just kind of nailed to the floor. And we kind of we 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 kind of um, think like that sometimes. Okay, they lived in let's say London doesn't mean that they were in London their entire lives. It doesn't mean that they weren't able to take their ideas to the rest of England or in the case of like um, um, any of these religious figures, particularly um, Gautam Buddha, who became Buddha, um, he traveled, he, he, he spread his teachings. And mm-hmm. that's how that's how they spread. And um, I mean, Buddhism today is, is, is a colossal religion that spread all the way all the way from India to Japan and beyond. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, what, this is the point. This is the point of the conversation where I start to fantasize about going back in time and getting to see it in, in real time, which I think anyone who's like super into history has had that thought um, once or twice. Um, I wanted to ask you, I know I know you're probably a little more focused on the classical world, but like, what do you do? You, do you read much about like we talked about Goblaki Tepe? Do you read much about those kind of like pre-classical 
cultures i'm thinking of like the sumerians or like the the indus valley civilization i've read a little bit about india in the indus valley and the sumerians um i actually did a great um little walking tour with a guide at uh like you know you can hire guides at the british museum who did the explained this um sumerian and assyrian civilizations to me which was fascinating um i i focused mainly like the latest uh, the 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 oldest research I've done was um, a narration of the the Trojan War, where mm-hmm. basically those civilizations were in decline. So I set up the structure of Bronze Age society, um, how it worked, how it was trade, like how its mercantilism worked, how its trade worked, um, and in 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 the context of the Greek world, but also the Greater Mediterranean. So Egypt is included in that. Right. The Assyrians are included in that. Um, so yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's, it, it's it's it was quite quite um involved that's why i think my episodes get so long because there's so much to include well for sure um what do you know about like the sea peoples that's another kind of mysterious force that i uh that i'm really curious about like in case anyone doesn't know like um there's a certain point in mediterranean history where really there's just these vague writings about people showing up on boats and just kind of fucking shit up and they don't know where they came from or like do you know much about that what can what can you tell me about the quote-unquote sea peoples one of the okay. most vaguely named of the ancient peoples. <laughs> I know. When I first heard them, I, I thought like sea monkeys, you know, like literally you know, those <laughs> old, old toys. Um, so, okay. The sea peoples are, are often blamed for the collapse of the first, what they consider the first rise of wide scale civilization, which is the end of the Bronze Age, the Trojan War era and all that kind of stuff. They supposedly came somewhere um, either from um, uh like coming, um, it was a migration of people that came to the Mediterranean coast somewhere between Italy and Spain, and then they they constructed boats and hit the the um, eastern Mediterranean world like a storm. The old an old kind of barbarian slash Viking idea, if you will. Um, they uh, they vanquished the Greek civilizations. This is how the story goes. Then hit Asia Minor and were only stopped when they reached Egypt. Um, I think this is this idea is possible, but there are a lot of other factors um, in that in that Bronze Age um, collapse because we have this failures idea- and and famine yeah. and pestilence. Yeah. Per, per, per precisely, we also had this colossal eruption. If you you're familiar with the Greek island of Santorini, Sant- Santorini. It's I mean, like, I know, I know, it's a great vacation spot. Yeah, well, I mean, I've never been. I want to go. It's beautiful. But what what that island is is today is the rim of this volcano, and it used to be a a, a rather large island called Thera, and um, it erupted. Um, so that if you take a mass volcano eruption causing crop failures t- coupled with disease and there's evidence now of major earthquakes in asia minor mm-hmm. um plus this catastrophic war that happened on the uh the, the you know at troy um you have civilizations that have been weakened through war natural disaster and then this mass migration of people the sea peoples i think it all worked together to bring it down because their economies had become specialized um, they would basically, uh, they would produce um, one, uh, let's say a, a town, a manor home, which is basically what a city was then. If you mm-hmm. think of a large kind of manor with the crops around it, um, villages around it, uh, they would bring everything to a central hub, which would be the fortress, and they would manufacture their goods there. 
and each fortress tended to specialize. Okay, you make you make linen, we'll make um, spearheads, bronze spearheads, let's say, and then that way you could trade. So the so it made it easier. And what happened was when us when individual cities or um, towns specialize too much and rely completely on the knowledge to make other things for other places, the supply chain is very vulnerable to collapse. So that's really another major factor in, in the first dark age because the supply chain that was supplying that entire world just utterly collapsed because no one knew how to do everything with, with the possible exception of the Egyptians. Mm. Definitely no uh, no applications to the present day. I don't think our economy is specialized very much at all. We all know how to make everything. I, I spun my own my own yarn before speaking to you today, and I'm going to be making my own shoes in a bit here. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's super interesting to me because because there's so little info about about um, that time, and uh, and yeah, I think I think there's also a tendency, or there's been a tendency in kind of mainstream history to overemphasize things like invasions and and movements of people. I think as well about in India. Um, when I was taking a, a class on Hinduism that um, the professor told me, because I, I had grown up my whole life hearing about the uh, uh, Aryans. Yeah, the Aryan invasion of India. And it's this Aryan invasion of India. They're the ones that came in India. They set up the caste system, blah, 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 blah. And then after years of reading this in my history books, I go to this class and this professor says, oh, by the way, the invasion hypothesis um, has been disproved. It didn't happen that way. It's not true. And I was just like, what? Because basically the, the, I guess the literature points much more to like a more, uh, more kind of like peaceful migration in stages ultimately, right? Well, it, it's an interesting case because that's still hotly debated today. Oh. Um, yeah, the Aryan question, because I think it's come into, um, you know, um, northern, there's a north-south divide in India. And then um, uh, amongst that, there are another, you know, 26 different divisions. Um, so like, uh, the idea promoted today and the reason they're discounting it so much, I believe is, um, or the ones promoting it contrarily, it has to do with the Aryan Dravidian divide. So they say that everyone who was pushed, they say, quote unquote, pushed south um, to the south of India, like they have darker skin mm -hmm. and um, they're called the Dravidians and the Northern people are called the Aryans. And they say that the Aryans are superior to the Dravidians. You know, it's a kind of a tale as old, old as time. Mm. I myself, I mean, to say that there weren't my migrations from, you know, the, the from the Caucasus, from, or from like from whether they areas. were violent or not is the question, right? I mean, because like the original history was the, the original picture drawn was just like, you know, they rolled in on like their chariots and just fuck shit up and took over the whole subcontinent. Right. But it was probably a lot more complicated. Yeah, it would. The idea that they just came in in one huge sweep would is probably wrong. But getting to the areas of like Punjab and stuff like that, you, it's easy to imagine that an, that a civilization that had discovered chariots versus one that didn't have them in the context of war at that time had a massive advantage. And according to all, like everything I've read about the Aryans, they were taller, they were stronger, and they were already a warlike race. Um, so, and if you think of the area that they come from, the, you know, central, the, uh, you know, the Caucasus, uh, like Central Asia, mm -hmm. um, that area has produced warlike um uh, civilizations forever just because of the nature of life on those kind of planes. Mm. Well, that, that's another really interesting uh, 
like a uh, subject because yeah, like the peoples that inhabited like the the steppes or whatever you want to call it. I mean, I know they were called the Scythians at various points, and and there's very very little um, like hard hard evidence uh, survive that surviving of like a lot of the peoples that exist in that time. But I mean, that was uh, a historical and kind of geographical thoroughfare that just had this enormous impact on like the history all all the history of Europe and Asia, right? Like, absolutely, um, yeah. absolutely. I think I. I'm I'm going to quote, I think is Dan Carlin said it best in one of his episodes. He says, if you, if you picture like the Central Asian steppe starting with like Mongolia, just as a very general starting point, and you picture it as a heart beating, pulsing, every couple of hundred of year, hundred years of all of human history, uh, a migration started from there and a wave came out and a wave came out. And as those waves came, they kept on pushing people farther and farther west, which is why you have like, you know, the Scythians down to the Sarmatians and all these mass movements of people. Um, the modern Bulgarians, for example, came from um, not Mongolia, but you know, that general area. And um, now they're in Bulgaria. Like they went to the Volga river in the, in the ninth century and over a thousand years they'd moved to Bulgaria mm. it's yeah. it's kind of it's it's kind of a cool way of thinking about it and that's why I think when you know anyone puts kind of an isolationist view of history is 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 just it's stupid we <laughs> if you're on the same landmass, you ended up inter interacting with people it's just how it was and most of the time it was uh some of the time it was violent but most of the time it was trade yeah and I think uh people also underappreciate how those kinds of those, the connective tissue of trade and, and cultural interchange really was never really went away. Like we talked about the dark ages, but there were still trading networks throughout the Mediterranean and Europe to, to a certain extent or another that I know I've, I've heard. I mean, you have to go into like the academic literature, um, which uh, I'm happy to do, but um, like, can you really even call Like, I know the dark ages are called the dark ages because of a lack of, of written records, um, mm -hmm. but were they really as dark as, as people, as people might think? I, I don't I don't think they were dark as people like as people might think I always view the dark ages as of course you know the, 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 that kind of um, idea that Rome was the light or whatever um, but uh, to me it's like th it, the age of darkness comes when there's a lack of mass literacy mm. um, and I think that's what uh, that's what the way I view like the last dark age I don't I don't think it was a time where uh, obviously there was a decline in um in um our abilities our civilizations no, no one could build like rome with you know, excluding byzantium which was eastern roman empire but if you're talking about northern europe um france those kind of areas it involved a long hard rediscovery and a lot of that was due, was due to the fact that um christianity was spreading and the church was becoming a power in and of itself so um it it kind of uh, without casting any aspersions, just historically speaking, it kind of hoarded all that knowledge. And it became as a means to power, which is, um, you know, if you have a 90% illiterate population, it's easy to tell them everything. They don't ask questions if they're only told because they can't do reading and writing on their, they can't read for themselves what, what a book says, which is what makes any kind of uh, religious zealot dangerous even today if you look at um some of the um, madrasas in in the in you know those in pakistan afghanistan where they're like wahhabism um, and whatnot yeah. precisely they're they're teaching kids who are primary primarily illiterate 
what the Quran says. Whereas if they could read it for themselves, they might get a vastly different interpretation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's dangers of that here in North America. I mean, what just happened last week, those, I don't think any of those people ever picked up a book and understood the historical implications of what they were doing. Um, yeah, I don't know that they, they didn't look too, um, too esoteric to me. Um, I, th- I think, you know, when you, so when you talk about the dark ages being defined by, by mass illiteracy, I mean, I, I, obviously most people can read and write in the, t- in the strict sense, but I, I worry about like a certain like media literacy, a certain cultural literacy, literacy that might, might be getting lost. And I wonder if we're kind of transitioning into our own version of a sort of dark age where things are, are just grossly oversimplified and Disneyified and, we don't really have like literature or thought. We just have like um, idea pellets that get distributed via um, electronic connections. I don't know. I'm also a very cynical, very uh, depressive person. So don't let, don't let me pull, don't let me pull you down into the dark, my own personal dark age. Well, I mean, I, I get your, I get, I'm, I'm fairly cynical myself about the, the political process, all these kinds of things. It's, and especially, um, the speed at which disinformation travels is truly stunning when, you know, we have, we're all carrying around in our pockets in the form of our smartphone forms, basically a compendium of all human knowledge. We can have anything we want. And yet people choose to only, and it's, I don't think it's their fault. It's the state, you know, of late stage capitalism that we live in. People don't have time to really be sit down and read a book or sit down or even even read an, an ebook on their phone it's quicker just to watch a youtube video where where someone can t- completely mislead you and then once you go down that rabbit hole you other foreign ideas become threatening to your worldview mm-hmm. and i yeah. think that's that's what we witnessed uh, the the other day like the storming of the capitol because those people like if you if you hear if we've we've been getting videos and interviews of of them coming out now and they're they are living in a completely different reality. So since I kind of think that we're moving towards, if, if, if capitalism is left to reign unchecked, we are moving to a neo-feudalistic society. It kind of makes sense that we have a neo-dark age along with it. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I mean, I don't think, <laughs> it's not as though history is, is going to tell us that that's impossible. It's not as though it's gonna, history is going to reassure us and say, no, 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 civilizations don't decline. And I mean, there's all kinds of examples of... Uh, I think a lot of the, that echoes a lot of the things we're seeing now, you know, a, a complete lack of faith in the elites. Um, you have like competing kind of media bubbles where people just kind of believe what they're told and hate who they're told to hate. Um, at the same time, you know, there are, there are uh, people still thinking intelligently and thoughtfully about things. So hopefully, um, hopefully we can avoid the worst of the worst. Um, but I don't know, like, do you, do, what do you, what do you think? I mean, speaking as someone who's, who, who's read a lot of history and thinks about it a lot, like, what do you think people are going to be writing in a history book in 20, 30, 40 years about, uh, the sacking of the U S Capitol last Wednesday? I, it, it depends. It, I, I totally think it depends on where we go from here. Are we going to start introducing a new fairness doctrine for cable news for, um, for a thing because it's enti- for the internet, you know, uh, uh, standard guidelines break up these companies, maybe let's see what happens, but it's entirely, if we stay on the course we are right now, it's entirely possible to have two separate, completely separate histories of what happened that just last week. Because we already know that the people who went there don't see it as this, um, this that they made some kind of huge mistake. They think they're standing up for 
um, to save their republic. And you can't tell them otherwise. They're, they're, they're sad that there's consequences, but they still believe that. Like there's been no mass correction here or there's been no mea culpa among the media for creating this, this just toxic environment over the last 40 years. And you know what? Everyone is complicit in it to some extent. It's, it's, um, it, it's a scary time, but I think honestly, if we don't change, we're, we, we will have two different versions of history. It's funny that you say this because um, I, I one, time, one time spoke to someone who grew up in the South of, South of America, um, just a, you know, a brief conversation at an airport. And we were talking about um, the Cuban Missile Crisis. And in his point of view, Kennedy lost the Cuban Missile Crisis. And that went contrary to everything I had ever learned, right? Like I'd read about it extensively. I went to the to the um, the Kennedy Library. I saw, you know, there's a lot of great films there about it, and um, and and the notion that somehow the United States, in the form of President Kennedy, <laughs> lost the Cuban Missile Crisis is kind of mind blowing because it was a terrible circumstance. But however, definitively speaking. Kennedy guided the nation out of it successfully. And then well, did, they, um, did they say he, he lost it because of the concessions made? I mean, I know they, they agreed to remove some of their missiles from Turkey in, in exchange for the Soviets removing theirs from Cuba, right? Was it, was, why, what was the logic behind the idea that he had lost it? The idea was that Cuba was right for the ultimately this, this took above, this was about a half an hour discussion, but it ultimately got down to the point was that he didn't have the brains or the balls to take back Cuba. And it was right there in, because we, because America did not take back Cuba, um, they, (laughs) they own the war. And I'm, so I, so I went on discussing, I like, you know, I wasn't, I barely know this person. So I found, I discovered that they went to a private school that only basically taught along those lines. Um, So, You know, we got to we have to be really, really, really careful about history's use because we have people walking around today who have a, already a vastly warped idea of what happened during some, something as major and as mainstream as the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm. Yeah, that's disturbing, um, but not that surprising. I mean, I think of all the of of all kind of subjects of of academic study, history is the one uh, people can most often use. For their own kind of nefarious purposes like it's it's one of the ones where people can always kind of it's, it's just so easy to cherry pick there's so much out there to cherry pick from um that and it really seems like there's a percentage of people certainly on the conservative side but on the left side too who are looking at history for a, a means to kind of reinforce what they already believe that and that, that and that's the problem well the like one of the problems with um, getting historical information and people putting it out there without people actually going and reading or fact-checking it, because um, it allows it, it. They people can take one or two lines of anything we said today and make it sound like something else completely. They can they can literally say that um, you know um, Isaac mentioned mentioned uh, the Bronze Age and um, and uh, you know, what he was saying was Western civilization is greater than any other civilization. If they took a tiny segment of lines, you know, a, a tiny segment of the of, of this entire conversation. And that is exactly what these people do. Um, I, it, I think uh, when I hear it on the left, it's largely to kind of glamorize the communist experiment that went on in the Soviet Union. 
um, which I'm against. I, like, I'm not against communism per se. I'm just against the idea of, 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 of perverting anything on the right. It's a lot is to do things around um, uh, racial ideas, to bring the ideas of racial superiority. Um, I'm, rem I'm reminded there was a documentary on Netflix about, oh God, it escapes me. It was about the, this Antifa leader and then the leader, um, white nationalist leader, who, um, who, who was one of the main drivers of, of what happened in Charlottesville. And he kept on bringing up this quote that uh, may, he said, the Chinese used to say that um, may we live in infant, inf um, interesting, interesting times. times. Yeah. yeah. That in fact is, if it ever was Chinese, it was meant as a curse. Like, may you never have to live in infinite, um, interesting times. But <laughs> there's actually no basis in fact that it came from China. In fact, it was, it was said by a U.S. politician, a senator in the, in the 30s. Hilarious. So, you know, he picked up this idea and, and, and ran with it. And, you know, everyone who listens to that was probably fully convinced that he was dropping Confucian wisdom on them when, in fact, sure. it wasn't. Well, that's also probably a bit of a function of, like, Orientalism. Like, if you, are you familiar with Edward Said and, and the kind of idea of, like, just just the study of, of uh, Oriental cultures uh, in general is always is generally has always been up until recently just bound up in a very western chauvinist tradition you know looking for wisdom from the exotic east the mysterious peoples and oh um, yeah you know exotic and sensual and, and the, the uh, celestial know, bride yes. yeah it's it, Di yeah it's <laughs> the dionysian to the dionysian essence to the western apollonian essence and whatnot just it's it's actually it's still a problem i would say very much i mean saeed was writing started writing in the 70s um but um, if anyone ever wants to read a really interesting essay about uh, about history, the work of history itself, uh, Orientalism is definitely a really good one to check out. I'll definitely have to read that. Yes, definitely. Yeah. That's that sounds amazing. He was a really interesting guy. He was uh, he was an MP in the Palestinian Parliament or something like that. Um, definitely an advocate for for Palestinian rights. He actually devoted, I think, much of his free time in his in, in later life to. Um, these music schools that he would create where uh, Israelis and Palestinians would just like kids would learn music together. Cause his, his idea was that like, that's, that's really one of the better ways he can, he can help to kind of bring people together more. Um, and I think he taught at, uh, I was, was one of the major universities. I think it was Harvard or Columbia or something like that. Um, and I always, I always find it interesting his historians writing about the work of, of, of writing history and thinking about it because it is, that you really bring so much of yourself to it. And I think, I think the best historians are the ones that are able to realize that and not, and not hide it. It's almost like a gonzo journalism-esque like ethos to it somehow. Right. Absolutely. You have to admit to yourself that you, um, everything you're reading is colored by your own experience. Um, and, you know, you're absolutely right. I think the best, the best historians do that and, you know, kind of um, give, they're they're willing to um, admit that they that they that they are seeing history through their own eyes. Um, yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah. And not and not fear that. I mean, I think I think once people kind of give up the ghost of like some kind of objectivity and and are comfortable enough in their own skin to say like, look, like pure objectivity is something that's really just an idea. I think 
I think a lot of the really interesting work starts there. Um, I wanted to transition into some cultural products uh, because you know, you're a storyteller, you're interested in storytelling. Um, and there's actually been, a, I would say like a little bit of a, uh, a kind of a groundswell of interest in, in kind of historical dramas. I mean, I think they're probably done, the, the, the quality of their execution is, is probably varying quite a bit. Um, and there's obviously like a lot of different approaches. You know, some people kind of try and take in a historical kind of approach and do things like colorblind casting and whatnot, which I, I definitely support in some instances. I think there's been some series that have really uh, found some really fertile terrain kind of going for uh, like an authenticity that isn't necessarily tied to um, like this a strict reading of, of the facts. And I'll, I, uh, just so you understand what I mean, I'm talking about like um, a series like I, Claudius, for example. Right. Obviously quite old now and, and obviously based on a book that was written in the 30s. Um, that's, that's something that I think is an incredible kind of like spinning of a tale about ancient Rome. Um, that that speaks to a lot of the history quite well and feels very authentic without feeling as though it's just a documentary or something that that, that can only stick to the exact facts. Like, do you think when when you're when you're dealing with a historical subject like that, is is that the right approach? Like authenticity rather than accuracy? Um. Well, I mean, in the case of Robert Graves, it it was it was more like his it's, it's more like historical fiction i so in that in that in that in that milieu i think you can do um you can go for authenticity more than fact um i like me personally i try to marry the two so that um when when like you know it's it's a it's a it's a human idea or like for example i did a uh episode where gaius marius actually received his prophecy from jupiter so over there, I took a little creative license with it because I figured out, I found out all the facts I could. And then I just, um, I recreated that moment. Obviously no one knows what happened in that moment, but I had to recreate it. Um, but in the case of I, Claudius, I think, I think it's done a wonderful service for humanity because I know so many people who like history because they saw I, Claudius. So then it, 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 it I, I look at like, you know, what, what I do in kind of that, that same light. It, it's it's a good primer for you to go and do your own reading. You'll learn the facts, you'll learn the basics, and then um, it. I always encourage people to read more because they can they they can discover things um, that I could never teach them in a you know two three hour podcast. For sure. I mean, yeah. I think I think any good historian would would encourage people to do the same. Um, I do, I do worry that we're kind of, things are getting dumbed down a little bit too often and people think, okay, well, because I'm listening to this two hour podcast, that means I'm now, I'm now someone that's like interested in history and that makes me special. And I've, I've done everything I kind of need to do. Like, like um, it's great that we have all these means of kind of like uh, talking about it and learning about it, but, but you still, especially if you want to get serious about it, you still need to go to some primary sources and you still need to crack the books and and you know, if if you're even crazy like you or me, look in some of the academic literature because there's always more. Mm -hmm. There's always more. There's always more things being discovered. Um, like back to I Claudius. Like I don't, I don't personally believe the idea that Livia killed everyone. Right. right? <laughs> but um, but it's a fascinating way to look at it. Like you know, a, a lot of his heirs died suddenly. Anyone who got in her way did die. And hmm, could she have? Like, it's an interesting interpretation. And in that, we see Graves' vision of it. And I'm sure it was tied up in a lot of his own 
you know, mental pathology. Mm. I think we, I mean, it's pretty fair to say we would not have Game of Thrones without I, Claudius, correct? I mean, I think George R.R. R. Martin's on, on record as saying that literally every time I, Claudius came on TV, he'd stop whatever he was doing and watch it. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure that's true. I'm pretty sure I've heard him say that as well. Uh, the I Claudius was was eye opening because not only was it performed like a like a play, but um, it, 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 I think it married television and and the and the art of staging a play very very well. And that's why like it's kind of an all time classic. Like I can watch it today and it doesn't look old to me. Um, it's it, uh, it was fabulous, and I think it actually opened the window for yes, Game of Thrones, um, the wonderful show Rome, which again, is yeah, which we can talk about again. Yeah, that's, that, that's actually the number one. That's the number one example I think of something being aiming for authenticity rather than like a strict accuracy. Like you watch that show, and you're like, oh yeah, like Roman culture at this time was was very different than I than I was taught in school, and and you know the blood and guts of it are like really really laid bare, but it's not as though you would look at that show and say, oh, okay, well, well, actually like Augustus did this on this year and not this. It's like, that's not the point. They're trying to actually just give you like a feel for the actual visceral experience of that time. Absolutely. Like, yeah, I think Rome is probably the the crowning achievement in that um, because you actually get to see um, life as it was and what might have been going through people's minds at the time. Um, and uh, in it, without sticking to a linear um a linear fact list if you will mm. of what happened when and where and um i think you know that's incredibly valuable because at the end of the day anyone who watches like you know i claudius or rome or any you know great historical drama i've even i've even had an instance where a friend saw gladiator and then ended up taking a university course on 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 history because it 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 sparks in your imagination. And the important thing is to take the next step, then, you know, encourage people to take the next step, open a book, read about it, and don't get disappointed at the show or, or whatever medium it was that, um, you know, didn't get something right, understand that that was their interpretation of it. Yeah, and that there, you know, when, when you when you narrativize history, I don't know if narrativize is a word, but when you make a narrative out of history, you know, of course, you have to take some, some creative license and I think I think people need to embrace that a little bit more because, um, you know, it's if if you're going to create a compelling drama with you know that that um, plays on your emotions and plays on your own life experience, I mean, ultimately that's gonna that's gonna have a more a more lasting impact on you than something that's just like a, a kind of dusty uh, kind of class style approach where you just uh, just remember these facts and these dates, you know? Right. Yeah. You 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 leave it you leave with whatever you've um, you leave with more than you come with, come in with. If you, if it's interesting and it catches your attention, um, that's definitely true. And um, you know, like in, like, I don't know, I'm a total history nerd, so I can listen to a lecture and be completely, um, you know, drawn in by it, but I'll play that lecture for a friend and they'll be like, you know, why, why am I listening to this? <laughs> but right. that same friend will listen to my podcast on the lecture and they'll see, they'll be fascinated and ask me, Hey, what was that lecture? You know, can mm. I, can I, can I go mm. back? So like, I think, um, my role as, um, is to basically, I, I, I set out at the beginning, I wrote a list that I wanted to accomplish with this podcast. And one of them was uh, do my part to give the future a past. Uh, so sorry, give the past a future mm. because, um, 
if I've, I've seen, if anything defines our era, it, I think it is a decline in the interest of um, humanities and everything being put into the economic arena. Um, and like, because people don't see a financial value for going and studying anything in the humanities, which is why they're being defunded. And, um, and because, you know, if you're going to go to school and leave with this massive debt, you better be able to earn the money to pay the debt back, which is why, you know, BBA classes are full and a, um, you know, seeking um, the higher level history classes have seven or eight people in them. So, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that we can change that because uh, we need well-rounded people, even especially in those industries that generate a lot of money, because um, if you're not, if, if you can only see the world through that narrow perspective, we have, well, we have the problems we have now, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's going to, we're going to stagnate. We're going to kind of become like oversimplified. I mean, you know, de-evolution de is, is a real concern as far as, I'm concerned, as far as I <laughs> view things, you know, I listen to a lot of Devo. I mean, I think, um, yeah, for sure, you're, you're absolutely right when you say that kind of the economic consideration has kind of clouded things because, and I ultimately think about it as, as a problem of just short-term thinking versus, you know, actual long-term strategic thinking, like, oh, okay, well, I'm going to study history. What, what job am I going to get with that? I'm not sure. Therefore, it's not valuable. Whereas, you know, as a society, if, if, there's a lot of people out there learning about history and reading it and writing new history. Um, you know, we might not be able to quantify the social benefits of that on a quarterly basis, but we're going to see them for sure over the long term. Um, and I think I think that's kind of the argument we need to make in terms of getting those disciplines a little more funding. Um, and also, like I heard about this on the Champagne Sharks podcast, they were talking about how like even just like professional historians don't really have an honored place in our society anymore. They're just like told, oh, you know, sure, you have this degree, but, you know, you're just going to get a shitty sessional teaching job and maybe go work in a museum instead. Maybe go start start your own YouTube show. Like maybe maybe we don't even need to provide you with a with a tenure track position for you to do your history. It's uh, as though, you know, like a historian should go work in a museum and the person working in the museum doesn't have their own specialized skills to kind of curate um, everything there. Like it really, it concerns me because like there's a natural tendency, I think, uh, for people in general to simplify history and reduce it down to kind of, you know, key figures and whatnot. Um, and I don't know if we're ever going to be able to completely overcome that tendency. Um, but the countervailing force of, of the serious historians actually going and looking under the rocks and opening the books that nobody's opening and saying actually things are a lot more complicated and, and, and interesting than we previously thought. I mean, if we lose the historians doing that work, I kind of think we're going to be fucked. It'll be a long-term um, process, but I think, I think that'll be one of the things that really fucks us as civilization, personally. Right. And I think there's, there's been a kind of intentional, particularly in the U.S. and some Western countries, a particular particular... I don't want, not a conspiracy or anything, but a, a general plan of the dumbing down of the population. I think they're very happy about the defunding the public schools so they don't have the arts. Like it all starts like, you know, with children. Um, because if you get children excited about history, they're gonna go to university and they're gonna study it. And then they can help change the system. Um, I, I, I have faith that, that the younger people in our society, particularly you know the the new generations, the people who are in their twenties, um, uh, they have a more appreciate more appreciation for um, um, everything else because the economy has failed them. They don't have this 
this myth of the meritocracy where you just kind of, you know, you do, you do the pro, pro forma things and automatically you're guaranteed wealth. Well, 2008 killed that idea, right? Um, and so I, that's why I think like, like when I say we're, we're in a golden age, I think we're at, at the edge of something um, spectacular. We, we, our, our world, like we do live in interesting times and our world can go many, many different directions right now. And I'm just hoping that um, people understand that there are, the human experience is so important to know because there are direct parallels to our time. Um, like I said, I don't think history, well, I, uh, I haven't said it here, but I all often say, I don't think history repeats itself, but it does rhyme. And in the context of today, like we're always hearing about America falling like it's the end of the Roman Empire, when in fact, no, it's kind of the fall of the Republic and it, it, it mirrors it exactly, which is why I did my new, the new series that I launched called Verses on, on Deep Into History. There's a really, really in-depth in look at the time of Marius and, and Sulla, where the Republic was a time where norms were shattered and ignored, a time of absolute wealth disparity, a time of complete and utter political corruption. Those, those, those things exist right now. We're staring at them. We saw it last week. Um, that was uh, a false populist um, uh, bringing up justify, like bringing up rage that and directing it when those people aren't equipped to, uh, haven't been told why they're feeling that rage in the, in, in the first place. Um, sorry, they have been told why, why they, why they're experienced that rage. They don't have a fundam fundamental understanding that, um, that what they were told was wrong. They're not, they're, they're not, it's been the policies of a 40, 40 year neoliberalish um, um, plan and austerity that has lowered their condition. And instead they're told to hate uh, immigrants. They're told to hate Democrats. They're told to hate their neighbors because of their taking from you. Whereas in, in fact, what, what we're seeing now is um, what, what, should be, what should be happening is, is class unity understanding that it's not about race, it's not about, it's not about immigrants, it's one class has taken all the wealth and everyone underneath it is suffering. And, you know, I mean, kudos to, kudos to the, the 1%, if you will, because an evil genius could not have pulled this off better because you have a, a population that is, is, is being fed a media diet where it is impossible for them to gain class consciousness because that would require them to reject everything they've ever thought was real. Mm. It's, it's stunning, really. If uh, Professor Harvey JK was here, he would say something like, oh, we need to take, take hold of our history, not just um, you know, 20th century history of radicalism in America, but just in general. I mean, would you say that as like an antidote to a lot of this nonsense we're seeing, um, kind of a deep and, and prolonged and sustained study in, of history towards a, like seeking to gain a greater understanding of it um, is kind of one of our greatest tools when confronted with, uh, with some of these political movements that we're, that we're countering, counter to? Absolutely. I'm a huge fan of, of Professor Harvey JK. Um, I often wish that Bernie had taken his line instead of wrapping himself in socialism, just saying, I'm trying to finish the new deal. You know, I'm an FDR Democrat that things might've turned out vastly differently had he done that. <laughs> um, but um, yes, I, I truly think that we need to um, 
the reason that this demonization of academia has been going on for the last 20 years, if you noticed on the rights, mm -hmm. um, it is precisely because they wish to discredit the idea of people going and reading a book by a professor. Why read a book by um, Harvey JK when you can read one by your favorite Fox News host? You know, mm -hmm. uh, Bill O'Reilly's dedicated a whole he has a whole history series. I mean, was it killing Jesus, killing Kennedy? Killing <laughs> like, you know, he's rewriting history with like his ghostwriters rewriting history. And that's that's um, he's giving it a dangerous uh, his it's his perspective. So obviously, by definition, it's got to be tilted. I won't waste my time reading it, but I've heard excerpts from the books mm -hmm. and it's just, um, it, it, it's, it's, it's insane. So yes, we need to, I, I love, my favorite thing to do is give people books. So uh, if I, if I find something fascinating from, from, from a, you know, a good, a good professor, I will always give that away. And I, I recommend people, um, there are many ways to engage with books now. I realized so many people don't have um, don't have the time to sit down and read their audiobooks, um, their lecture series, and it, the wonderful thing about the internet is that you can actually engage. A lot of these professors, if you write them and you have questions about their books or the lectures or whatever, they'll engage with you. So um, uh, your <laughs> academics are everybody's friends, and we need to we need to embrace the really really good ones so that we don't have these tools who call themselves the IDW and things like that representing the um, the pinnacle of the um, of, of the prof professorial class because they're not um, they're frauds and charlatans many of them in my opinion oh absolutely have, yeah um, do you have like anyone are there any historians or people writing about the work of history how to do history um, that you think could be really useful for for the audience to check out, or maybe a particular historian whose approach you think is kind of emblematic of uh, of something you'd like to see reproduced that people could check out there. Uh, my favorite historian currently, they keep changing, but um, I would recommend anything by Adrian Goldsworthy. Um, he is phenomenal, writing about mainly the well, almost exclusively the ancient world, ancient Roman world, and ancient Greek world. Um, he's just come out with a book, uh, Philip and Alexander, which which tells the story of well, um, Alexander the Great and his father, King Philip, and how they were able to create this logistical miracle and this um, technologically superior army that was able to conquer the known world at the time. Um, he also that's a whole another that's a whole another podcast episode. We can talk about phalanxes and. Oh um, yes, oh, Pyrrhus and Pyrrhic victories and Alexander and yeah, definitely. Next I'd love time, to next talk time. about that. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. Okay, and his name is um, oh yeah, okay, uh, Adrian Goldsworthy. Cool. Adrian, yeah, Goldsworthy. I think I think I think the best historians you read, you you end up kind of getting a really strong sense of their method, um, just by reading the work itself, um, mm -hmm. which uh, which can be really it's honestly very, very exhilarating, especially like you'd think that things that happened thousands of years ago, it would be hard to get exhilarated by, but um, what's that saying? There's no new history, only new historians. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and in fact, there, there's so many who write extraordinarily well. One I'd like to shout out that a lot of people don't, um, don't haven't read uh, much is Stephen Dando Collins. Uh, he, he writes books about specific um, legions. There's one called Caesar's Legion, which is probably one of my all-time favorite books. It follows the 10th legion throughout its history. Caesar, Caesar raised it in Spain, and he follows individual members of it, and um, it gives you life 
on the campaign as a Roman legionary. It's, it's stunning. It's wonderful. I recommend everyone check it out if you're interested in the time or even if you just like a good story, because to me, that's peak staying completely factual, but at the mm -hmm. same time, making a stunning narrative out of it. It's just over 300 pages too, so it's not it's not the weightiest of tomes. I'll have to I'll have to check that out. That sounds really interesting. Um, I always I always find it super fascinating, especially like after you've done the work of kind of getting the broad strokes and understanding the the kind of the history overall. When you when you're able to go and, and see like a, you know a diary that someone wrote from the ground, um, it's infinitely fascinating to me because you get you get such a more visceral. Um, and, and uh, you, get a, you get a portrayal and an understanding of the history that just stays with you so much longer. Absolutely. Yeah. And we, there's so many wonderful historians these days. So it's great. Um, listen, I know we said we'd go until about half past. So I'll start the wind down procedure. Um, what, uh, just remind people really quickly before I forget where they can follow your work and, and, uh, and check you out. Sure. Uh, Deep in a History is available on all podcast platforms. So anywhere you, you, you can listen to your podcast, there's also a YouTube channel, but it's just the audio playing on the video. You can follow me at Deep in a History on Twitter and get your daily blast from the past. I'm also have an Instagram at Deep in a History. Um, so come join, follow. We can we can talk about history and listen to the podcast because I think everyone in your audience will love it. Absolutely, absolutely, and it's really great work. Um, well, before we go, maybe, maybe I mean, because it's it's something you've been thinking about, I think, recently here. Um, maybe uh, for people, we can just give them one little last taste. Like when when you're talking about the fall of the Roman Republic and the parallels you see to now. I mean, if you could, if you could kind of sit in your throne and say, okay, well, these are the things we need to think about, and these are the things we need to worry about, and these are the things we need to work on to avoid. Um, you know, a kind of a, a downward slide into totalitarianism. Like uh, if you could just kind of snap your fingers and lay that down from on high, like what kind of things would you say to people? I would say, number one, watch out for false populists because they are everywhere and there are dozens of them, if not hundreds of them. I, I, I sort of feel like there's a heart of uh, a fake populist looming in the heart of almost every politician. They're just waiting for their opportunity because um, we have to start holding our politicians accountable. Um, and that's the, that's a mistake that was being made that was made in the Republic as well. The late Republic um, people were able to run and make false promises to the people, rile up support, get them excited and then deliver nothing. And when that happens often enough, as it has been hap hap uh, happening for us for the last 40 years, um, in essence, what, what you're doing is setting yourself up for someone who will be so popular and such make such outrageous promises that people will become fanatically loyal to them. And that leads directly, it's, it's, it's a straight line to fascism. Um, another thing I would say is that the late Republic had a strong sense of class consciousness, and we need to reach out to people who disagree with us. Because um, it once once you explain to someone, and I, I don't recommend going to someone who is wearing a shaman costume and you know waving a spear around, but <laughs> sure. you know you know you know you're 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 um, someone on the opposite side that you're sitting down and having a coffee with. You can have a very very nice conversation explaining just a class dynamic to them without bringing really politics into it. You know beyond generalities and. It, it's strange. You can awaken people. And um, it's one of the most wonderful feelings in the world when you've explained to someone that, oh, okay, um, you know, 
the, the we get the word race the the phrase race is a construct is thrown around a lot these days but what the follow-up is yeah. missing is that okay if you explain that to someone fine but then tell them why why that existed it existed because they needed to prevent class consciousness from truly taking hold and for a sh- for short time during the new deal era we had it we had it but we've let it go and if boomers out there that's why we all say okay boomer <laughs> uh, you guys let our co- class consciousness just completely disappear yeah i think people would be surprised like how uh how how readily people how, how ready people are to be engaged on on a level i mean even like you know you talk about the things that that people can kind of bond over um, that might be, that might be on opposite sides of the political spectrum. You know, music is one, but I think history is another one. I think deep down, most people have an interest in learning about history, have an interest in in learning about the, just the the massive previous human experience and and what that means for them and their life. And, and people feeling connected to history is something that, that is really powerful too. I mean, Adnan talked about that at one point as well, like um, talking about the spear wielding maniac um, in the, in the uh, Congress, you know, and and the I think a lot of the motivations for the original kind of Viking revival in the 18th, I think it was in the 18th and 19th centuries, had to do with a certain type of nationalism and whatnot. Um, and and we see that people on the far right really really enjoy feeling connected to this grand historical tradition in their minds that they're somehow the latest in a, in a long chain. Um, uh, going all the way back to like some some mystical imagined kind of uh, Western civilization. But um, but people can be connected to history in all different kinds of ways. And I think I think if you can introduce them to uh, discussions based on history and based on your your studying and understanding and reading of history. Um, yeah, I think I think all kinds of conversations can spring from that. And I think people would definitely be surprised um, how effective they could be in kind of changing someone's outlook a little bit, maybe maybe in a granular way, maybe in a kind of a glacial way, but but it will happen. Absolutely. And um, one thing I like to tell tell people, and I, I, I try to practice it myself as much as possible. Remember, history is his story, our story. So when you when you're trying to relate something to someone, I often recommend just make it a good story make it a good conversation. And you'll be surprised that like, you don't have to, it doesn't have to be confrontational. If you want to talk about something like um, the fall of, relate the fall of Republic to now, tell, tell it as a, a fun story, make it fun and interesting and people will, will always respond and engage. Yeah. Well, I think that's what you're doing, man. So, uh, so great work so far. And I'm sure everyone will be uh, continue to follow you closely and uh Really, really fun to get a chance to talk to you for the hour today. I think uh, I think we might have to do another another episode, and, and we'll delve into you know Rome and uh, I Claudius a bit more, maybe even Vikings. I don't know if you watch Vikings, but uh, sure. although it's gotten pretty bad in the later seasons, I'm not going to lie. But also an interesting show in terms of kind of trying to like, especially early on, um, show kind of an authentic, fully kind of fleshed out, lived in world. Um, that wasn't necessarily, you know, too bound to just like, okay, well, what exactly do we know for sure? Right, 
Right. No, I, it, I really enjoyed that show. I think until I think I saw it this, the fifth season and then it kind of like kind of lost me mm-hmm. well, right, right till Ragnar died. I was I was invested in it. <laughs> I, I thought I thought when Athelstad died, a, a big part died. And so it's so funny that I'm watching a TV show where there's a main character called Athelstad. And, and yeah, <laughs> like in case people don't know, he's this Christian who they kind of kidnap early on and he becomes friends with kind of the main character. And I think that friendship is a really interesting study in kind of the cultural clash. And I think the, the culture clash between the Christians and the Vikings in that show is, is where a lot of the most interesting kind of stuff um, takes place in my view. Um, but yeah, certainly the first few seasons are worth watching. There's a certain point where, yeah, you're, I think, yeah, it's definitely season four or five where I was just like, oh man, nope. <laughs> yeah, it was like, I, I was no longer emotionally invested in their characters. And it, 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 to me, it, it kind of, I mean, it was never strictly historical because um, Rollo and Ragnar are in, in history. If, if uh, Ragnar- Is it Rollo? I've, I've always said Rollo. I didn't know it was well, pronounced Ro- Rollo. That's that makes a lot more sense. In case people I, don't know, the founder of the Normans. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so he wasn't, in fact, Ragnar's brother. They were separated by by um, I think 250 years, uh, if I'm right. I could could be wrong, but you know, at least a century. And um, uh, Ragnar Lothbrok is tied to the idea of the um, the raid on on Lindisfarne, and Rollo mm-hmm. was was probably not even related to him if Ragnar actually existed at all. And he was he was he was centuries later the Viking that settled Normandy, but I like the fact that they touched on that. Like you know, it it was mm. it was a nice it was a nice progression. Yeah, uh, yeah, it definitely got me interested in Viking history, and and I didn't realize kind of the the incredible kind of cultural impact the group had. You know, all the way from Russia to Iceland, um, also featuring uh, Gabriel Byrne in a, in a villainous role. A rare villainous role for the fantastic Irish actor Gabriel Byrne in the first couple of seasons. Yeah. I, found it, I found it really hard to hate him because I just fucking love Gabriel Byrne so much. <laughs> and but he was a fantastic villain. Let that guy act. I said, like, let's plug him in other roles because it was amazing. Yeah. So uh, yeah. yeah, I like I like at the very beginning where Ragnar's just like, oh, we have to go and find new lands in the West, and Gabriel Byrne's just like, no, let's just go raid Russia again. Let's go to Russia. <laughs> of course, Russia didn't exist at the time. Right. Um, right. Obviously itself kind of was formed by like the like there was there's Kievan Rus that was created by Viking raiders that was kind of the prehistorical version of Rome okay or not Rome uh Moscow and and Russia which was the third Rome see again see now that I'm actually waking up I'm just thinking about every possible historical topic I could ask you about (laughs) even though we're winding down Arjun thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk to me on Night Roll though I really enjoyed this conversation I'm sure uh I'm sure the audience will as well and I'll uh I'll try and get working hard on my editing and uh, I'll shoot you a, a message when it's uh, when it's released. OK, well, thanks for having me, Isaac. This was a lot of fun and I look forward to more uh, Night Rule. It's been amazing. Mm-hmm.